Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is part three of our series about time. This one will focus on time and the Holocaust, and this is a special episode for Asor Batavis. Yes. So it will focus on timelines, I guess, because the dates that we are familiar with from the Holocaust are all Nazi ones. When Bobby Yar took place, the dates of deportations, of creations of ghettos, with the possible exception of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising on the 19th of April, 43, and the liberation of Auschwitz on the 27th of January, 45, which is ubiquitously known as Holocaust Memorial Day. And in many ways, both those dates are wrongly defined anyway, because, you know, why would the Holocaust be memorialized on any day before the 8th of May, the last day of the war, bearing in mind that after the period of 27th of January, at least 100,000 Jews died. And when we talk about Auschwitz being liberated in January, of the 63,000 prisoners who were there at the beginning of January, 56,000 had been taken on a death march, from which less than 50% survived. So what exactly was the liberation that took place of mostly empty wooden barracks? And the dates that we are familiar with are relentless. I mean, the Holocaust timeline, by definition, is going to be negative, surely. So obviously, it was a period of unremitting tragedy. But it shouldn't be the only timeline. And that's exactly where Jewish calendars tell a different story. Perhaps we should approach this by broadening the issue for a moment and talk about definitions of the Holocaust in general. Most history books have the Jewish outcome of the Holocaust defined, and that is that the Holocaust is about victimhood. We were victims, innocent victims, and the average person would agree that that is a good definition, but unfortunately it falls far short of the mark. It's the wrong word. But don't you think that was the way to describe the Jewish situation and the Jews in 1945? It's the appropriate adjective in the immediate aftermath of liberation, but it's a dangerous label because, firstly, victimhood has a limited shelf life. You know, when you have a Jewish country which triples its size in six days in 1967, and by then Jews around the world are as wealthy and politically powerful as they are, the word victimhood doesn't fit. Secondly, it invites comparisons not just with other genocides, but even within the Holocaust. The idea of 5.7 million Soviet victims, for instance, that died in World War II. But most importantly, victimhood doesn't explain why and how it unfolded. It renders almost everyone into the background. Because if we were victimized then it was the the bullies in the playground that picked on us. 
And then we focus on a group of fanatical Nazis who made it happen to these unfortunate Jews, obviously with a sprinkling of righteous Gentiles, because it's important that Hollywood has a happy ever after ending. But the, the films will have no names of the tens of thousands of uh, Nazi collaborators in Holland, in Belarus, in Hungary, you name it. And therefore, it confirms the decision of the Western allies not to pursue the vast majority of people who were initially named to be investigated for war crimes. Because, you know, we're done here. We got the real fanatics, the bullies. Nuremberg tried, you know, I don't know, Streicher, Hans Frank. Eichmann was caught. Well, we missed Mengele, but we got everyone else, right? But if you go to either the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum or the Imperial War Museum, in the last room, you have the numbers of people who were actively involved in the Nazi genocides. The totals given there are between 70 and 80,000. Of these, less than 10% were ever brought to trial and only 10% of those imprisoned, so 1% of the total. There was simply no appetite to do so. And why is that? Well, that's exactly the point that I'm emphasizing of victimhood, that it is the, the main people involved who were the bullies who were dealt with. And that, by the way, is besides all the companies that made money from the Holocaust, in which I include American companies like IBM. The Holocaust as victimhood is basically an unlucky confluence of events. You happen to be in the playground when the bullies walked by, but it could have been anyone. So, you know, for instance, the BBC will write, and I'm just quoting this by way of example, because you could find this anywhere. They say the Jews were not the only victims of Nazism. It is estimated that as many as 15 million civilians were killed by this murderous and racist regime. And then they go on to say that the Holocaust was the biggest of the killing programs and in certain important ways different from the others because the Jews were targeted for complete extinction. And the Holocaust led to widespread public awareness of genocide and the 1948 UN Convention on genocide. So, you know, in other words, we may have lost six million, but hey, we got our very own paragraph in a document in that august organization, the UN. Victimhood perpetuates the idea that it was a circumstance of events. There was high unemployment. There was a convincing speaker and demagogue like Hitler. It was the terms of German surrender after World War I and the Versailles Treaty. All these pieces basically fell into place, and National Socialism creates victims in its wake, unfortunate victims. Meaning that isn't connected to anti-Semitism of the past, the Middle Ages, for example. Exactly. In other words, the, the oldest hatred, as it is referred to by historians is ignored. Victimhood turns the Holocaust into a unique event. And I have to say that even Jews have swallowed this message. They focus so narrowly on the Holocaust being an event of its own that conclusions are taken from it which are ahistorical. For instance, Hitler would have killed me as a Jew, so I am a Jew even if my mother isn't Jewish. Why? Because the Holocaust is now a defining element of Jewish identity. Totally divorced from 2,000 years of history, of halacha, Hitler is now Poisic. Are, are gypsies Jews? Why not think for a moment why Hitler wanted the Jews dead? 
And it never, if you think it's because of the Versailles Treaty or unemployment in Germany, and even more never, if you think that he was able to pull off the greatest mass murder in history during the main years of annihilation of 41 to 43, simply because of certain events a decade earlier that had no relevance now. I mean, the mass graves of Eastern Europe, where at least 1.5 million Jews were murdered at close range, were starved by Ukrainians and Lithuanians who had no interest in or knowledge of the Versailles Treaty. It's a fatally flawed understanding of what made the Holocaust, of what it set out to do, and therefore we don't extract certain key lessons from it. I'm not saying that the Holocaust isn't unique, but in what way? If it is unique because the Nazis are an unprecedented historical entity, then we remove it from the timeline of prior history. When we say unique, we mean in its scope, efficiency, collaboration, numbers, but not because it isn't part of a longer narrative. You know, Lawrence Rees is a, a well-known Holocaust historian. He wrote a number of books, not just on the Nazis, but he compares dictatorships and, and mass murder under Stalin in Japan, in Nazi Germany, all in the 20th century. He interviewed hundreds of individuals, many of them perpetrators, and he asks them about their involvement and the reason people gave for being involved in the murder of innocents in Russia and Japan is because they were ordered to do so, because of the regime. Whereas the reason often given for why they killed Jews is not because they were told, but because it appeared to them to have been the right thing to do. And unless we go down that route, at least minimally to explore it, we are conveniently shelving it with other episodes of mass murder. Wow. There is a unique date in the calendar called Holocaust Memorial Day. And a decade from now, it will be called Genocide Day. Why should it be otherwise? Why should Jews be able to claim the sole franchise to genocide? It, it's a very real question. If the only way of seeing it is as part of World War II, disassociated from its causes, and disassociated from the fact that it happened in a first world country, if you don't see it for what it is, then it's simply another genocide. We already have Red-Brown Day on the 23rd of August, made by the European Parliament more than a decade ago. We don't have enough time at the moment to expand on it, but basically Eastern Europe has now lumped together all Soviet deprivations with Nazi suffering. You think you suffered? So did we. It's a total equivalence. Even though, let's say as an example, children weren't targeted and for sure weren't mass murdered by the Soviets. I remember when I was in Poland the first time, then I went to the castle there. What's the castle called again? In Krakow. Wawel? Yeah. And I was stopped there by a painter who was painting their scenery. And he said to me, you're Jewish. I'm assuming you've come to see your ancestors that were murdered here. I said, yes. And he said, well, you didn't come to see my ancestors that were murdered here too. Right. How is it that the Jews get to all the... There is sort of that feel. I'm sure you get Very that much. a lot if in you, Poland. If you go to, to Vilna, for instance, the prison now is a museum of genocide. And I remember telling one of the survivors who still lives in Vilna that I'd been there. She was very upset. It is a travesty 
There is basically nothing mentioned about the Jews because it's, you know, it's how we suffered under the Soviets and there's no equivalence. Tragedy is tragedy. We have to give it perspective. You know, the real question is, why were Jews the victim? Why were they the ones being bullied? Not just in Germany, but subsequently in, in Austria, in Poland, followed by Lithuania, Latvia, Ukraine, France, Holland, Greece, Italy, the Channel Islands, Hungary. Why did it resonate with so many nations? In some of these countries, the Jews were middle class. In others, they were working class. In yet others, they were the poorest segment of society. You know, if you contrast Hungary, Austria and Holland on the one hand, they almost have nothing in common with Lithuania. So, so what is the switch that turned on victimhood across an entire continent? The Holocaust needs a proper definition. I mean, basically, all I've done to date is tell you what it is not. Hmm. Perhaps just before Pesach, we will deal with it at length. Having said all that, equally, the Holocaust needs adequate awareness and reference to the Jewish reaction and experience. Are you also referring to the survivor's stories of the Holocaust? I really mean that the broad understanding of their experiences. On a personal level, we can't trace the Holocaust. Right. Obviously, we do have narratives, but most Jews don't have a voice because they never survived. So what we need to find is what spoke to Jews, especially on a, a more communal level, what was the Jewish experience, the narrative that was created for the many or by the many? And an example of this is the calendars written in secret for a greater audience, a greater public. And I'm very grateful to Dr. Alan Rosen, possibly Rabbi Rosen, actually, for his book on the subject, which has been very helpful. And really what I'd like to talk about is more than a sort of a time tracking device. It, it was something that created memory under the extraordinary circumstances of Nazi persecution. Because one of the most effective forms of torture, of coercion, is to rob a prisoner of their sense of time. And it's particularly destructive when it's applied to a religious Jew. Nazis especially the higher ranking ones in the field, were well aware of Jewish practices. I once saw in, in Vienna Eichmann's original arrest warrant that was put out in 1945 by the, I think, the Jewish agency, and it listed under languages that he spoke three, German, Yiddish, and Hebrew. And he traveled to Palestine in 35 or 36, something like that, and they would therefore, for instance, use Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as a time of selections. Most infamously, uh, which people are quite aware of in Auschwitz in, in 1944 and the various questions that arose as a result, the children, they would use Purim as an excuse to hang 10 Jews. And this is not an isolated event. This occurred over and over. They were aware. So time was robbed of its sacred moments. But it was more than that. Time was deformed in the camps on three levels. The first was the exclusion of a future, given the complete uncertainty of any tomorrow. There was just survival. There was just today. Equally, there was a limitation of the past. That past belonged to a totally different world from the one I was living in. I, I couldn't relate to it anymore. And then... There was the exaggerated experience 
of the present, which dominated. Viktor Frankl famously observed that in the camps, the small time unit of a day was filled with hourly tortures and fatigue, and it appeared endless. It was an overwhelming sense of now, and therefore simply surviving through the day was so much to deal with. There was testimony given at the Eichmann trial in 61, a guy called Dinur, he had a, a pen name, and he said that on the planet of Auschwitz, where he spent two years, time was not like it is here on Earth and that every fraction of a minute there passed on a different scale. And to add to the sense of of endlessness was the fact that the days just, just followed one another with nothing to make one day stand out from the next. You know, you often find memoirs have no dates in them. The disorientation is so great that people forgot the very day of the week, something that, that we simply cannot imagine. Perhaps to illustrate this from, from a different perspective, Robertson Volber wrote a book about her wartime experiences in, in Lithuania. Now, besides for the fact that she eventually married Rushlema Volber, she was also the daughter of the Mashkiach of Slobodka, Rabavrom Grzegenski, Hashem in Kovna. It was from her house that Rabachon and Vassam was taken. So she was no lightweight when it came to, you know, to Judaism. Yet she says that as a result of the tribulations of the war, she forgot the prayer of Ashrei. So, you know, who doesn't know Ashrei off by heart? Especially somebody who came from a household where, you know, tefillah was, was emphasized. But the Holocaust was so shattering that it removed the givens from life, including which day of the week you were living through. It was unbelievably destructive. Everything shut down other than the minimal aspects of life now. There's a woman called Bertha Saltz who writes about an extraordinary meeting she had in in Bergen-Belsen with an old woman who was... Uh, reciting God von Avram, which is a Yiddish prayer said by women at the end of Shabbos. And Saltz asked her, how did you remember that it was Shabbos? Because to her, that was an obvious question. How, how do you keep track of time? That, even that basic time. And the remarkable reply that she was given was that this woman had arrived recently from Hungary. And since then, she'd made a point of making a knot in her dress every weekday until she had seven and she knew that day was then Shabbos and that's how she would start the process again. Wow. But, but without that. It was impossible. If they were living for a future time after all this, could they in any way escape the present? That's what gave the present less hold over them. I mean, think about it from a far more, shall we say, spiritual perspective. It is no accident. It is by absolute design that the very first mitzvah given to the Jewish people, the first national commandment is to make a Jewish calendar. Because it separates them from the ordinary. It elevates time. That the Svarna writes, slaves don't need a calendar because their time isn't theirs to control. Whereas creating a calendar restates the narrative. It says I can never be made into a slave ever since Yitzhak Mitzrayim, ever since I left Egypt. 
decades, centuries later, under any circumstances, even if obviously the many obvious aspects such as actual Shabbos observance were out of reach. Now, in creating these calendars, the struggle wasn't just to find the material to write it on, but to find the necessary information. We mentioned last week that the, the Jewish year has 14 different permutations. So, you know, if you're living in a ghetto, they're books, they're people. If you're in a camp, you're in hiding. And beyond that, to have the presence of mind to record essentially a future, it takes courage, fortitude, and above all, optimism. Now, only nine concentration camp Jewish calendars are known to have survived, one from Buchenwald, two from Bergen-Belsen, three from Theresen, one from Westerbork in, in Holland, and two from Auschwitz. There are references to others that did not survive, and each Luach is an entire story in its own right, and uh, I'd like to share details of some of these. The first for me, was the one written by Rubiakova Vigda, who was a Rav in Poland, who was deported to various camps, eventually to Buchenwald in 1944, where he lost his, uh, his wife, his daughters, his brothers, but he never lost his faith nor his will to live. And he gave away his tiny daily ration for a sheet of paper and a, and a stub of a pencil and working from memory, he creates a calendar, which was an offense punishable by death, similar to the possession of, of a watch, of, of timekeeping equipment. But he is undeterred, and he wrote, and I quote, I know that it is necessary to convey to the coming generations what we had and what we lost. And I know that I still have the strength to act and benefit our nation gasping under terrible suffering. I know that I still have strength to help renew the observance of Torah and all that is holy which has been destroyed. And he used cement bag paper. And he was meticulous in, in his calculations, in his detail. He even included you know, the instructions for, for shaking Arba Minim, for Lulav and Esrug. But there are a couple of things that he changes. He kept out of it, he omitted the fast days in the summer during the three weeks of Shivasabatamas and Tishabov, possibly out of concern that a person would otherwise push themselves too fast. And he felt it was dangerous, basically. It was a rov, after all. And he also ended the Luach, this is in 45, in the month of Av, two months early. And in fact, earlier during the war, quite a while earlier, while he is being transported to a different concentration camp in a cattle truck, he told his son that within two years it would all be over. And therefore, leaving out the month of Av signified his hope for salvation by then. Now, there's an interesting aftermath, which is not specifically related to the calendar, but it's so powerful that it's worth knowing. After liberation, he's brought to Belgium. He's given the rank of a senior officer from the Polish army. He had originally been a chaplain before the war, and he was even assigned a personal driver, which enabled him to travel freely to the camps to you know, help the survivors. And he spends Rosh Hashanah of 1945 in a DP camp, giving Droshus to infuse some life into the, you know, the dry bones, as it were. 
However, in retrospect, taking on this role was a far more fateful decision than he ever imagined. His son, from whom he was separated in Plashov near Krakow, writes that in 1945, everybody I spoke to after the war about my father gave me very little hope that an aging rabbi like him could possibly have survived. He writes further that he was in Italy, the son, and sometime towards the end of June, he was walking in Milan, and in the distance he saw a girl from his hometown, um, Drobic. A non-Jew there had concealed this woman for two years, and she was now looking for a certain individual, a young man whom she had married in the ghetto. And I had to tell her the sad news that he had been in the barracks with me in the Gussen camp and had died, and I'd seen his body being brought back to the camp. And he writes, I gave her as many details as I could of her husband's death and tried to comfort her with words. A few days later, she came to take leave of me, and before we parted, I gave her a letter with my signature attesting that I had seen her husband and that he was no longer alive and she was eligible to remarry. So she ends up eventually in Bergen-Belsen. It's a liberated place now, but it's a center. And she met another young Jew and decided to marry. And she wanted to get married immediately. But the rabbis and the civilian authorities wouldn't do so unless people had identity papers and, above all, proof that their spouses were no longer alive, which often took weeks and sometimes was never properly resolved. Now, Bergen-Belsen was one of the main assembly points for survivors, and a special rabbinic board had been set up there. And Rabbi Avigda, the father, was one of the heads of the Jewish Rescue Committee, as we mentioned, and he was also the chairman of this rabbinic bureau, the, basically the head of the Bezdin. But he wore a military uniform, and very few people recognized him as Rabbi Dr. Avigda, the former Rov of this town in Poland. Even though this woman had come from there, she didn't recognize him. So this woman tells the Bezdin in Bergen-Belsen that her husband had died in a concentration camp and that she had written testimony from a witness who'd seen it happen. And she takes this piece of paper and, and in a fit of anger, she throws it down on the desk and she shouts that she's got this certificate from a rabbi in Italy. And the father looks at this piece of paper and sees his son's handwriting and signature and realizes that his son's alive. That's how he found out. Wow. I mean, it was another three months before they found each other, and they arranged to meet in the central train station in Milan. It was so crowded with soldiers, and they looked so different from what they had done before the war that they walked up and down the platform for three hours, and it was only by their voices that they eventually recognized each other. Wow. Incredible story. You've spoken very powerfully until now about how their calendars gave hope life really to these people do you think that the authors of the calendars realized at the time how important they were so let me share perhaps two different calendar stories both of which i think go to the heart of your question one is seen many years later and one during the period in which it was experienced the first is the luach created 
by Rav Yisrael Simcha Zelman while in Nazi concentration camps. He ended up being alone in Nazi-occupied Europe because he managed to get his wife and four children to safety in, in Manchester in England, where they spent the war years. They knew that their father-husband was alive, but not much more. And he is deported to Westerbork and then to Bergen-Belsen. And he composed a handwritten calendar and held on to it through the 15 months that he was in Bergen-Belsen. Now, obviously, it contains all the, the necessary information about the Jewish year. The calendar's unique feature was the listing of the yacht sites of three Hasidic masters, the creators of the dynasty of Geren and the Kotzka Rebbe. And he put that in not as a sort of a luxury, but because it provided a vital link in this case, not to the future, but to a vibrant past. It was that this calendar was so meaningful to him that he gave specific instruction that the calendar be buried with him when he died. He was by then in Eretz Yisrael, which is what happened, because this was the most precious and appropriate object to define his lifetime, his achievements during his lifetime. Almost became a piece of him. Yep. And that I think answers your question. And just by the way, there was a Megillah. He had a Megillus Esther that survived through Bergen-Belsen with him too. But the calendar gave meaning to the life of many because creating a plan for tomorrow allows for the possibility of hope. That's one. And then there's another account, very different, this time from Lvov, of David Kahana who actually eventually he survives. He becomes the chaplain to the Israeli Air Force, I believe. And he wrote a diary during the war, and he describes a particularly moving episode regarding Eloach. He was in the Anofsko concentration camp where many of the known stories about the Bluzhva Rebbe, they took the jumping over the pit, other such stories, they take place in, in Anofsko. It's just outside Lvov. And Rabbi Kahana realizes one night that two of his friends have not returned from their work detail and that they've basically been murdered by the Nazis. And he doesn't know who he's going to tell of this tragedy. So he resorts instead to, so to speak, telling his diary. He takes a 50-year calendar that he had received from one of these men while they were still alive. And... He, he records in his diary that, that leafing through the diary was like saying Kaddish for his murdered friend. And he wrote, today, the fifth day of the week, it's the 24th of Kislev, 5703, in 1942, they were killed. And then he writes, suddenly I remembered, Master of the Universe, is today not the first night of Hanukkah? Even with the friend's calendar in his bag, he was so submerged in the camp's brutal routine that he could not keep track of time. He just read the words without taking them in. And now what he does is he actually, so to speak, rectifies that which he had forgotten. And he, he tells the fellow prisoners in his block of the date he somehow organizes, you know, a threads and, and something to, to make a, some type of menorah. He brings his blockmates together. He says the brocha, as well as giving words of encouragement to his barracks. And they sing moist sur, chronicling the Jews' triumph over ancient enemies. 
and all because of a calendar. I always thought till now, I mean, obviously I've heard of calendars that have survived the war and I thought it was more halachic almost that they wanted to hold on to their Shabbos, but it was clearly just so much more. It yes. just gave them hope for future, it gave context, as you said before, to the time. Yeah. But if we go back to Rabbi Victor, he writes that even the Muslim, the prisoners who are at the end of their tether, they got strength to continue when they would be told in a whisper of a forthcoming Yontif, you know, tonight's Pesach, tonight's Kol Nidre. Calendar knowledge plays a role in nothing less than preserving life. And Rabbi Lau said that the only time he recalls Jews ever sang on their way to forced labor in Buchenwald was on Purim. They sang Shoshanus Yaakov. And, and he says, you know, as a result, even the weak walked more upright that day. So, you know, very much so. However, moving from that to probably the most unusual wartime luach, definitely the, the most remarkable, it was written by a non-Jew, by an Italian priest, actually, called Gitano Tantalo. He had become friendly with a family of Jews while vacationing, I think, in the mountains in the summer of 1940. And when the Germans took over fully as the occupying power in Italy in September 43, so this family, the Orvieto family, fled, and they were taken in and hidden by this Italian priest. And for 10 months, he provided and hid these seven Jews. And beyond providing for them materially, he also tries to help them keep Shabbos and the festivals, he created a calendar so that they should know when is Pesach. And he got them new dishes somehow and the ingredients to make matzah. And he's, you know, wow. recognized as one of the righteous Gentiles of World War II. But that calendar, you know, is just so almost bizarre. Wow. One Were last... there other popes who... Did we find that a lot, that religious Christians sheltered? It depends in which countries. In some countries, it was the exact opposite. I was going to say. In fact, Uruba Vigda's son, the one that we spoke about earlier, writes that the towns, the cities, priest was very friendly with his father because his father would help him write his speech. You know, he was basically a person incapable of putting pen to paper. And his father did it all for him. And when the son goes to the priest... The priest says to him, if you're prepared to take on our saviour, otherwise, you know, he shows him the door. And he actually writes that in his particular case, a, so to speak, friendly Nazi saved him from a roundup rather than a priest who was beholden to the family. Wow. So it depends which country. This was, this was a fluke priest. Right. One last narrative about an individual known to many of us, but not for his calendar. Although in his case, time, or perhaps more exactly the sanctification of time, was so important that he subsequently, you could say, devoted his life to it. Rabbi Shuren Neuvit, the author of Shmir Shabbos Kilchosa, is born in Germany. His family escaped to Holland, and Holland falls under Nazi control in 1940. The Jews lose basically most opportunity options to get food. And he writes that during the occupation, we received forged ration cards from the Dutch underground. So we were able to survive during the war, even though we had to go into hiding. And his sister, 
who didn't look Jewish, removed her yellow star and with I mean, incredible courage, went out every few days to stand in line with other Dutch citizens, non-Jews, to buy food for the family with these ration cards. And many miracles followed. He gives one example. The Germans tightened the siege and intensified the search for Jews and conducted, uh, you know, systematic house-to-house searches. One day, they come to the street in which Rovnovitz and his family are hiding, and the Nazis divide themselves into two groups. Each group starts at one end of the street, and they move towards one another, towards the center. And they're checking each house as they progress to the middle. And the building they were hiding in was exactly in the middle, and it wasn't searched by either group because both relied on the other to have searched it. And it was located opposite headquarters. And then he says that their father decided it was time to go into hiding. They went up into an attic of, of one of the houses, and the place was full of, you know, junk, and that's where they hid. And it was a very cold European winter, which made the attic life difficult and from that point until the end of the war which is almost three years they stayed there without the possibility of going outside and he writes even of looking out of the window and that it is hard to imagine how an entire family could sit in an apartment for almost three years without leaving it because of the the danger involved and he writes you know Baruch Hashem we were not discovered three years yes What did they do for three years in a, in a room? What did they do about food? So the Dutch Jewish resistance knew they were in hiding and smuggled food to them. And, and just before Pesach, they found potatoes so that they wouldn't have to have uh, any food, which is problematic halachically. They prayed. They said to Hillim. They studied. That's how he writes it. They had a few svarim with them, including significantly the third volume of Mishnah Brura, which is all about the laws of Shabbos. And throughout it all, Shabbos was a mainstay for him. He writes that they didn't have a Eloah, a Hebrew calendar. So at the age of 16, he writes one using the Feldman Kitzer Shulchan which his older brother had given him at his bar mitzvah. It was, in fact, the only gift he received when he reached that milestone because he was in hiding. And Rav calendar includes even, you know, details like saying Borchi Nafshi and other sort of seasonal prayers. But the real key, the, the center of it is Shabbos. It's set apart from any other day in the calendar in two ways. First of all, the six days of the week are abbreviated, and Shabbos is not. And they are in Dutch, and Shabbos is in Hebrew, because this is the proclamation of this calendar. And what's interesting is that the Dutch Jewish underground photographed the Luach, and disseminated it to Jews in the camps and to Jews in hiding. And Shabbos continues to feature strongly for that family, even during the rest of the war years. His father wanted to try and enable his sister to survive by sending her to work as a housekeeper for a a non-Jewish Dutch family. She had an Aryan appearance, and so she could, you know, sort of circulate more freely amongst non-Jews. And she worked in the home of a judge uh, who was on the Dutch Supreme Court. And she eventually told her parents that she had to work hardest on Shabbos because she had to help prepare the family for Sunday, which was, you know, a big day for them on a weekly basis. And after a few weeks, their father decides to bring her back into hiding 
despite the fact that in the judge's home she was safer and she had food, but because of Chilul Shabbos, Shabbos was being desecrated. And that Friday, she enters into hiding with the family. Two days later on the Sunday, they heard that the home of the family where she'd been working got a direct hit from an aerial bombing and the entire family was killed. Wow. Incredible um, story. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Rav is that problems with Shabbos ironically started after the war when they are trying to gain their freedom and make their way to a safe haven out of war-ravaged Europe. And that is when he was confronted with a situation that forced him to desecrate Shabbos. And he later writes that his post-war commitment to bring Shabbos observance within the reach of every Jew came from a desire to atone for this Chilul Shabbos, for this desecration of Shabbos. And he would create the most used and consulted safer in the home for a 20-year period uh, for the laws of Shabbos. It precedes all you know, the current books that we are familiar with, and it carried the endorsement of Rav Shlomo Salman Erbach basically every page. Although, really, you could say that his wartime calendar already showed the centrality of Shabbos in the life of a Jew, whether one in hiding or in, in freedom. Wow. Thank you very much, Rabbi Hirsch. That was a very powerful episode. Uh, I would just like to add, if I may, that this podcast is Le'ilu Nishmas Rameshri Yehuda ben Rabtzvi, whose yard site is on Chof Aleph Teves, and my father, Rabbi ben Rabhaim, whose yard site is on Zion Teves. Chaim Aruchim. Thank you. Thank you very much. That brings our time series to an end, I believe. Yes. And we're taking a break now? For about three or four weeks, yes. And we will start up with a probably a four-part series on Provence, south of France. Okay, we're looking forward. Thank you very much again. And enjoy the break. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>